Good morning, Warehouse 242. I'm sad not to be with you in person this morning, but I'm confident about the decisions that we're making to love each other well, to love our neighbors well during this time of the coronavirus. And um, at this point, that means canceling our services and doing this, this virtual thing. So we'll see how this goes, but I'm grateful for the technology that enables us to do it and uh, so that we continue walking through the book of Mark as we have been doing in our follow series. But before we do that this morning, I just want to pause and pray for our community and our neighbors, for those impacted by the coronavirus in these last few days. So please pray with me. God of all comfort, we come to you today with our full selves, including our anxiety and confusion and frustration. And we claim your beautiful promises, primarily your promise that you will be with us always, no matter what. And may those who have contracted the virus or who are in quarantine have this sense of your presence and be filled with courage and hope. May an awareness of your nearness lead all of us to lay down our anxiety and in every situation, with thanksgiving, with confidence, to present our requests to you. Um, and in doing so, we long for more of your peace, which transcends all understanding that guards our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus. And so, God of all relationship, we ask you in this time of social distancing to give us a deeper sense of our union with Christ and our union with each other despite not being together. And guide us in this time to discern what it looks like to stay connected, um, how to gather in safe, creative, life-giving ways. And God of all wisdom, give us the discernment we need to know when to pray, when to speak out, when to act, uh, when to simply put down the news report and sit quietly in your presence and to receive all that you have for us. Thank you, God, that we can come to you to lighten our burdens. And thank you, Jesus, that you have carried those burdens to the cross. You have risen again to give us the life and the hope that we so desperately need. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so for those of you who haven't been with us in this follow series, what we're doing is going through a chapter in the book of Mark every week. And this week we are in Mark 11, part of the story where Jesus enters Jerusalem, he curses a fig tree, he makes a ruckus in the temple. So that's the part of the story we're going to look at. And every time I get to this story, I think about my own experience more than 20 years ago on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. I remember this feeling of, of being very small in this very vast place. It was, it was an incredible experience. Of course, now at the center of the Temple Mount is the Dome of the Rock, one of the three sacred mosques of Islam. Uh, but originally, this was the site of the temple that God commanded his people to build as a sign of his glory and as a sign of his presence. It was deeply moving for me. I remember really like it was yesterday, just walking around in these places, these places where Jesus walked and lived, places where Jesus taught and to sit there and to learn. Um, it was actually in that experience 20 years ago when I first had an overwhelming call and sense that I was meant to dedicate my whole life to understanding this Jesus and teaching about the good news of Jesus. Um, and since then, of course, I hope my understanding of 
Jesus and his story and his work has deepened. And one of the ways, one of the things I'm continuing to learn is that anytime we are looking at the story of Jesus, what Jesus did and what he taught, who he is, it's really helpful to understand the whole backstory, the whole story of God that is then funneled through and fulfilled in the story of Jesus. And then that story, of course, is the one that transforms my story and your story and the story of the whole world. So as we look at Mark 11 this morning, what we're going to do is zoom out a little bit and look at some of that backstory, some of the things that Jesus is drawing on and fulfilling. And then we're going to zoom in, of course, and look at our own stories. How is this impacting us? What difference it makes for our own lives? So here we go. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Mark 11. And as you look here in Mark 11, verse 1, it starts with Jesus entering Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Um, He's riding on a young donkey. And all of this, the way that it's happening, is a fulfillment of a prophecy in the book of Zechariah. It's a prophecy about the sign of this coming Messiah, this coming king, whose kingdom was going to spread from sea to sea. And there are some specific prophecies that are fulfilled, like in Zechariah 9, verse 9, says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Zechariah then goes on to prophesy that there's restoration and freedom and salvation and redemption that would be accomplished by this coming Messiah, by this coming king. So Jesus' symbolic action as he's entering Jerusalem on this young donkey signals the the memory and the hope of this prophecy. And so people start shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They know this moment is really critical. And what Jesus does the next day confirms that what is happening is truly the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, that he is the long-awaited Messiah, although not the kind of Messiah that people were expecting. So let's read about what happens next then. This is starting in verse 12 of Mark 11. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. As his disciples heard him say it, and on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. He wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. 
Now, what we have in that passage that I just read is a famous Markin sandwich, where Mark begins with one scene, he moves on to another scene, and then returns to that original scene. So in this story, we have this, this scene of the fig tree that's like the bread of the sandwich, and then Jesus' action in the temple there in the middle is, is the meat and cheese. And uh, like all these Markin sandwiches, it's the, it's the middle, it's the meat and cheese that gives the meaning and the flavor to the, the other story, to the bread. So we're going to look at that middle part first, the meat and cheese, beginning with just a little bit more background, because this is important to understand where Jesus was and why this was significant. See, the temple was the spiritual, political, uh, relational, geographic center of all of Judaism. Uh, this here is an image of the second temple, but the history of this temple is that 1,200 years before this, uh, God had commanded David to build a temple. It was actually completed by Solomon around 970 BC. And that temple was then destroyed in 586 when the Babylonians invaded Israel, took Israel out um, in exile. The temple was destroyed. Then they eventually returned from exile and built a second temple. Um, that temple was around in sort of an incompleted state for a while. Um, and eventually, 20 years, 30 years before Jesus, uh, Herod the Great, he was a king of Judea, a Roman king of Judea, rebuilt and made even more grandiose this second temple. So this is Jesus, this is what, what it was like when Jesus is entering the scene here in, in Mark 11. And even though Herod the Great, who was a Roman king, built the temple, this was still very much a respected place for the Jewish people. It was a, a place of holiness to them because this represented the presence of God and the glory of God in their midst. Uh, it was a place of purity for the Jewish people because this is where sacrifices would take place to take care of their sins, to, to cleanse them and to make them pure. But the tragedy at this point in the history of the temple is that it had also become a place of deep injustice. When Herod the Great rebuilt and expanded the temple, he did so to establish himself as the king of the Jews. And as such, he demanded that anyone who was bringing sacrifices, anyone who was engaging in temple activities, would have to pay him a tax. And the, the prices of the sacrifices were inflated. And so this whole system of sacrifices and taxes and what Herod was demanding was really oppressing the poor here on the temple grounds. So there was one Jewish group, the Essenes, who rejected the whole thing. They didn't want anything to do with the temple because of that injustice, because of Herod's involvement. And then there were another Jewish group, the Sadducees, who were using it to their own advantage. They were getting richer and richer. They were getting more powerful. So there was that dynamic going on. While at the same time, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, were excluded from any sacrifices and any prayers at the temple. There was this, this wall that divided the court of the Gentiles from the part of the temple where the Jews, Jews could enter. But um, there was this wall of separation that was keeping the Gentiles apart from the Jews. So Jesus enters the scene in Mark 11. He says, actually, the whole purpose of the temple was for it to be a place of worship and prayer for all people for all nations, not just the Jews. You see him saying this in verse 11. He taught them and he said, 
Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. First part of that sentence, Jesus is quoting from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, He's predicting this time when the temple would become a place of prayer for all nations. In Isaiah 56, verse 6, he says, The foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. In other words, the ultimate purpose of the temple was to benefit and draw all people close to God. But the reality of the temple, the reality that Jesus entered into, is that it had become this massive industry uh, to benefit those in power, to benefit the religious elite, to the detriment of the poor and the foreigner. Because only Jewish people were allowed in, and then even those people had to pay these, these inflated prices for their sacrifices. They had to pay these taxes, and, and poor people were going into debt to be able to afford the very things they needed to do to be faithful Jews. And that's why Jesus is saying in Mark eleven seventeen, it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And that phrase, den of robbers, is coming from another prophet. See, all this stuff has a backstory, and so Jesus is drawing from Zechariah and then Isaiah and now Jeremiah. The context for the Jeremiah statement, Den of Robbers, comes from chapter 7 of Jeremiah, and I think the context is important because Jeremiah is, is saying, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, a foreign god, follow other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So as a result of what was going on in the temple in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah goes on to predict that God is not just going to cleanse the temple of of wickedness, but that God is actually going to completely destroy it. So this is significant. When Jesus is invoking this prophecy in this moment that we're reading about in Mark, he's saying, and as he's turning over tables in in the temple, Jesus is symbolically enacting the whole destruction of the temple and all of the religious system of extraction and exploitation uh, that had been built up around it. He's saying it all needs to be turned over. It all needs to be destroyed. And that's why when we read the religious leaders were upset, now we can see, yeah, I mean, Jesus wanted to turn over their entire world. He's saying it's all, it's rotten to the core, and it needs to be destroyed. That's why they wanted to kill him. And it took his disciples a little bit longer to get that. A couple chapters later, when Jesus is leaving the temple, this is in Mark 13, one of his disciples said to him, 
Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. But Jesus says, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And again, if the temple is going to be destroyed, which is the epicenter of Jewish religious life, that means that the whole religious system is going to be dismantled. And something else, or someone else, is going to rise up in its place. Which, of course, is exactly what Jesus had been predicting about his death and his resurrection. Now, just a few days later, Jesus was arrested, and he was nailed to a tree to be crucified. And there were onlookers there who were mocking Jesus because of what he had said about the temple. They were saying things like, you know, you said the temple would be destroyed in three days and, and rise up, uh, or, or be destroyed and rise up in three days, and now, and now look at you. Um, what are you going to do about it now? But, of course, what, what those onlookers failed to realize is that while the temple symbolized the presence of God in one place, Jesus embodies the presence of God in one person. And it's absolutely critical to understand. While the temple was the ultimate symbol of God's presence in one place, Jesus is the ultimate image and fullness of God's presence in one person. And so while the temple, there, there was this offering of ongoing sacrifices and forgiveness of sin, Jesus, in dying, is offering himself as the final sacrifice for a definitive forgiveness of sins. So when Jesus is destroyed on the cross, he was destroying the power of the old temple and the whole religious system that had been built up around it. And when Jesus rises again three days later, he rose as a whole new kind of temple in whom we can be right with God, we can be with God forever. In this new temple of a crucified and risen Jesus, anyone from any nation with any background can come freely to God and have an intimate reconciled relationship with God. In this new temple of a crucified and risen Jesus, we can now have unfettered access to God's presence and unparalleled purity and, and peace with God. So everything that the old temple stood for, the presence of God, purity, sacrifice, forgiveness, all of it is now available in Jesus, the new temple. And yet in a more personal comprehensive and permanent way. And that's exactly what a New Testament author like Paul is talking about when he preaches the gospel or good news of Jesus. He writes, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone as the chief cornerstone. And in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In other words, not only is Jesus the new temple and we have access 
to God through him. But when we are united to Christ by the Spirit, we become a part of that temple. And there's a lot of mystery here, but, it, but it's amazing. We, we're a part of the temple, and this is why we have unfettered access to God, unending possibility for conversation, unlimited depths of forgiveness. And I think that's really important for us in this time, in this time when we're, we're dispersed and we're not physically present with each other or, or physically present in, in this space of Warehouse 242, that even when we're dispersed, uh, it's really not about a physical place anymore. That we are the temple of God. We can be with God anywhere. We are connected to each other anywhere, united to each other because we are united to Christ in this, in this new temple. And that the Spirit of God is present with us, right, individually and collectively, wherever we are. So I think that's amazing to reflect on, as well as the fact that everything that used to be available through one particular place that was the temple is now available through one particular person, who is Jesus. And he offers you everything that you need at every moment by his Spirit. The one requirement is that we would recognize that we need it. We would recognize that Left to ourselves, there are all these natural barriers between us and God, but Jesus has cleared the way. And so we humbly turn in faith to this good news and we receive everything God has to offer. And that actually takes us back to the, the Mark and Sandwich. The, the temple story was the meat and cheese, remember, and, and the bread was this kind of strange story about Jesus cursing the fig tree. Uh, so I just want to go back to that a second as we close here. Some people have a hard time making sense of this. It's like Jesus was hungry, hangry maybe, and he curses this fig tree because he's angry. Uh, It's not really what's going on. Remember, everything has a backstory that Jesus does and says, and this is no exception. It's not random, and Jesus is not taking out his anger on this poor tree. Uh, The imagery of a, a withered fig tree with no figs comes from Jeremiah. Just a few verses later, from the Jeremiah 7 passage we read earlier, Jeremiah 8, 13, this imagery comes up. There's this fig tree with, that, with no fruit and withered leaves, and it's, it's illustrating uh, a spiritual disease of not having true faith and then therefore not bearing true fruit in our lives. And by drawing on this imagery as he's going to the temple and then away from the temple, uh, Jesus is really exposing this spiritual disease in in all of us. And and in order so that we would be ready and open and willing to receive the new thing that Jesus was going to offer, this new way of relating to God as a new temple. So by cursing the fig tree, Jesus is, is saying to you, recognize that you're dead in your sins without God's mercy, but that in Christ you come alive and you can bear fruit. And by wreaking havoc in the temple, Jesus is saying to you, give up your your old ways of trying to relate to God on your own effort or by following rules or whatever it is and, and embrace and trust in me as the new temple to give you total access to God and complete forgiveness. 
through his life and death and resurrection, Jesus has fulfilled the whole story of God. We've seen little parts of that today. Jesus fulfilling all of these prophecies, fulfilling all of these hopes, all of these, these promises. But specifically, he has fulfilled this long, long, deep desire to be close to God, to be near to God. And he's given each of us a place in this new story today where we can be close because of Christ, because of his spirit. Um, and I hope that encourages you today, you know, in this moment when we're feeling distance, we're being encouraged towards social distance. Just this reality that we are as spiritually close to God in Christ as we will ever get. And uh, that, is, that is an incredible uh, truth that, that fills me with joy, and I hope you have some similar joy today as well. Um, so as I close here, I just want to pray uh, the prayer of Paul in Ephesians as he is actually away from his congregation and he is wanting to bless them. He's wanting them to be filled with this joy of the glorious riches of God. And so the same prayer I, I want to pray over you. I pray that out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen and go in grace.